This is unquestionably one of my favorite psalms. I very often, uh, <clears throat> when I have a bad day, just take out this psalm and read it, reflect on it. I, uh, I've taught on it a number of times in uh, different gatherings, conferences. and I think years ago I uh, taught it here on Sunday morning. But uh, every time I try to analyze this uh, psalm, I always feel like I ruin it. I feel like uh, a botanist must feel when he or she is confronted with a, a beautiful, fragrant flower. And uh, it has to be analyzed, you know, cut apart, dissected, understood. And what you're left with is uh, just a bunch of uh, pieces. Can't put it back together again. Can't experience again that, uh, that joy of, of primary discovery. Uh, what I would really like to do with this psalm is invite you over some spring uh, evening and we could sit out on my back porch in a couple of rocking chairs and, and uh, we could savor uh, this psalm. Just take in its, uh, its fragrance. Uh, talk about it. Let it melt in our minds and enjoy it. Uh, uh, experience its redolence. It's fragrance. It's just a wonderful, wonderful song. But uh, since I'm paid to preach, uh, <laughs> that's what I will have to do this morning. And uh, trust that the Spirit of God will take this instruction and will make this psalm uh, increasingly meaningful in your, in your experience. Most translations give uh, a title to this psalm of God's omnipresence in God's omniscience. Now, those are good words. Uh, theologians go to school a long time, and they pay a lot of money to learn those words. And uh, they have to use them from time to time, and they're perfectly good words. Uh, omniscience, of course, means God knows everything. And omnipresence means that uh, he's everywhere present. But, frankly, I don't think that title well explains the significance of this psalm, because when I read it, it doesn't say to me that God knows everything and he's everywhere present. What it says is that God knows me. God knows me. And God is always close to me. Now, that's something to wax poetic about, which is precisely what uh, what David does on this occasion. Now, I don't know anything about the background of this psalm. We're not given any information in the title, but I suspect that it came out of uh, this dark, gloomy period of David's life toward the end of his flight from King Saul. We've talked a lot about the emotional strain, stress of that period, David's dark ages, and particularly his time in Ziklag. I don't think David wrote this psalm at Ziklag. I think that's a time when his heart harp was silent. David was mute. He was far from God. But... Uh, I think this is a psalm that may have risen out of that experience. And it, it really has to do with how we deal with these dark, gloomy periods of our lives. Times when we're deeply, uh, profoundly depressed. Uh, David was a melancholic. and He was often depressed. Carolyn commented last week that if they'd had Prozac in David's day, he wouldn't have written half the psalms that he wrote. <laughs> 
Now, I don't, I don't have any problem with uh, the appropriate use of antidepressants. I think they're indicated at some point, and certainly when they're coupled with uh, therapy. But it's true that these these dark periods of our life often drive us to a deeper level in our relationship with God than ever before. And I think this psalm is, is simply a, a reflection uh, of, of that, that period in David's life when he was very melancholy and uh, very much down on, on himself, disturbed about his own personality, not, not liking himself very well. Jesus said, sanctify them through truth. Your word is truth. Now, what he meant is that all of our progress toward God is really the, the result of acquiring truth. As we begin to, to, uh, to discover what's real, and we begin to think about that reality, it draws us closer, draws us on in our, in, in our relationship with God. That's always the process, reminding ourselves of what's true. It's what the psalm is. It's truth, which we can uh, bring to mind during those, those dark periods when we're, when we're depressed. I was listening this last week to some of the tapes from the Women's Conference. Uh, that's the only way I can get in on the workshops. And uh, there, were, uh, uh, there was one workshop uh, in which a local Christian counselor was, uh, was speaking, and she was talking about uh, the research that's been done in education about negative and positive learning environments. There are certain environments that are much more conducive to learning, and there are those schoolrooms, classrooms, situations where teachers are affirming and positive and supportive and encouraging. Kids learn better in those environments. I don't think anybody needs to tell us that. We know that. We think back on our own experiences. And and the situations that were most conducive to learning for me were those where I was supported and encouraged. I think back my seminary years and Howard Hendricks' influence on my life. You know, I'd turn in some sad paper and, and Howie would catch me on the campus sometime later and he'd say, Roper, that paper has tremendous potential. Go back and... Work on it for a couple more hours and turn it in, and and uh, you know, lots of lots of potential there. But he, very very supportive. You know, anything back on other teachers and coaches I had that were always yelling at me, and I did learn well in those environments. Perhaps some people are stimulated uh, to make progress in negative learning environments, but most of us are not. We do better when people are positive. Now the point that this counselor made, and this was a good one was that we can create that negative learning environment in our own heads. We can yell at ourselves, loser, dummy, failure, fool, fatso, whatever. And uh, it's frustrating and inhibiting to our progress in the spiritual life. We get down on ourselves. And God can't speak to us, can't touch us, can't change us. I don't know about you, but but adolescence for me was the most traumatic period of my life. I hated adolescence. When people talk about carefree youth, I you know to me that's an oxymoron. I don't know where they were during their adolescent years, but for me those were not good years. You know, and I remember one day I think I was probably a sophomore in high school when I discovered my nose. My nose grew faster than the rest of my body. And I remember looking at the mirror and realizing that I had this stupendous, prodigious nose. 
and you know, I I went still, still when I think back on this, but I I was so frustrated by by nose that I just I just hit myself as hard as I could right in right in the nose. Of course, that really helped, you know. <laughs> it not only made it bigger, it turned it bright red. So those were terrible days, and they were terrible days for me spiritually as well. I, I had a casual relationship with Christ during that time, and I, but I was so preoccupied with myself, so frustrated by what I looked like and, and my failure to break into or stay in the circles that were so important uh, to me that I, I, I really had little time for God. I spent most of my time thinking about myself. You know. Well, I wish someone at that time had had read this psalm to me. I think it would have been very helpful if they had taught me the significance of this of this truth. That's why I, I want us to look at, at this psalm together, because I think if we understand the message that David has embedded in this poem, we will like ourselves a whole lot better. And the result is that we'll be set free to love God with all of our heart, our soul, uh, and our mind. Now, what I want to do is just read the poem and annotate it a little bit. <clears throat> I would encourage you to, to go home this afternoon and reduce it to the, the poem to three by five cards that you carry around in your pocket or put on your mirror in your, in your bathroom or on the dashboard of your car or on your desk and just meditate, ruminate uh, thoughtfully on this, uh, on this poem throughout uh, the week. It will give you a much more realistic picture of yourself. Now, uh, David begins by answering the question, how well does God know me? Verse 1. Oh, Lord, he says, you have searched me and you know me. The word for search here really means to ransack. It has the idea of taking something apart and analyzing, scrutinizing Every part of it. It's used, for example, of the spies that were sent into the promised land who, who searched out every nook and, and cranny of, of Palestine. And what, what David is saying is that God doesn't miss anything. He captures everything. He knows everything there is to know about me. He's acquainted, intimately acquainted with all my ways. He understands me thoroughly, inside and out. And he says... You know me. You know me. Now, one, one of the peculiarities of the Hebrew language is that it really only has, well, it has very few conjunctions and really only one that's used over and over again. It's usually translated and. And it can mean all sorts of things syntactically. Here, the and signifies result. And what David is saying is this. You know me. See? You have searched me with the result that you Know me. This word for knowledge here is the same word that's used for sexual intercourse throughout throughout the Old Testament. It has the idea of a very close, personal, intimate relationship. God knows everything there is to know about you. He has not missed one item in your in your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. David says in verse two, "You know when I sit down." And when arise. That's what grammarians call a, a merism. The expression of opposites to indicate totality. We have the same idiom in, in English when we say uh, that's the long and short of it. We mean that's everything I know. 
when we say, you know, we go to a, 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 an event of some sort and we say the rich and the poor were there, we don't mean that there were just two socioeconomic groups, but all economic groups are represented by that, that gathering. Uh, the expression is used in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the universe, the writer has in mind, say, it's a marriage. Now when David says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, he's saying, you know about all the events of my day. You know how I feel when I get up in the morning. And you know, Some people are morning people, some people are, are evening people, and you're an evening person, and you, you, know, you know how you feel in the morning, grouchy and grumpy, and you don't want to be touched, you don't want anybody to talk to you. And God knows about that. He understands your, your physiology. He, he, he knows how you feel when you stumble into the, the bathroom and you, you look at yourself for the first time in, in, in the morning. He knows whether you brush your teeth this way or this way. He knows which sock you put on first. He knows what you had for breakfast this morning. He knows what you thought about on your way to church. He knows what you're thinking about right now. He knows about the illicit drugs that you're using. He knows about the stash of pornography that you've got hidden away somewhere in your house. He knows about the defeats and the hurts and the pain in your life. He knows everything about you from morning until night. Nothing is hidden. Everything is open to his scrutiny. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive, uh, you understand is the idea, my thoughts from afar. Now the word for thoughts here is not Merely the word for random thoughts. It's the word for longings, desires, intentions, hungers, yearnings. He knows that secret desire that you have that you you haven't shared with anyone. You you, you feel uncomfortable letting even your best friend in on that that yearning because you're afraid that they won't understand or or they'll laugh. He knows. He understands the. The, the heart desires that you have, what, whatever they are, he perceives those from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. That's another merism. From the time I get up in the morning and leave the house until I come back at night and I, and I, uh, go to bed. You're, you're familiar. You're intimately acquainted with all of my, my ways. See? He knows when your children struggle. He knows when you receive a letter from uh, from uh, from someone that's that's highly critical and hurtful, and it just devastates your your ego. He knows when your therapist doesn't return your calls, or your pastor, or whoever. He he understands those hurts. He knows when your dog dies. You see, uh, the, the small things, the trivia of life. He's intimately acquainted with all of all of those factors. David says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. He not on, do you understand what he's saying? He not only knows what you said, he knows what you intended to say. You know, all of us are wonderfully gifted at stuffing both feet into our mouths at the same time. We, with the best of intentions, all, uh, often say the most hurtful, harmful things to people. Sometimes even to the people that, that we love the most. We're all trained to 
communicate better. We're trying to learn to send I messages rather than you messages to talk about how we feel rather than blame others. But we slip up. We forget and we unload uh, guilt and blame on others. We lash out at them and we misspeak ourselves. We, we, we just don't get it right. We, we want to say positive, encouraging things and, and we, we often devastate people with our, with our tongue. God not only knows what we said, he knows our hearts, he knows what we intended to say. Before words on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. That word for hem in is the word uh, that's used to, in, in Old Testament warfare for the siege of a city. You besieged me, is the idea. This, this is the, the psalm, by the way, from which Francis Thompson took his uh, famous poem, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, upvisted hopes, I sped and so forth. You're familiar with, with the poem. His description of God's feet following after, after. You know, hounding us is the idea. But not hounding us in a, in a bad sense at all. Hounding us because he loves us. Because he wants to draw near to us. All of the Bible is really God saying to us, come closer. It's all about the pursuit of God. It's all about his desire for us. That's one of the great encouragements that comes from reading the Bible. is understanding that God wants me far more than I ever wanted him. That all through eternity he's longed for me and chased after me and Every circumstance of life, even when I run into, uh, run away from him, he, he, he pursues after me, right in the midst of my guilt. And as someone has said, when, when the only escape from him is by running straight into his arms. He, he, he won't leave us alone. Dogs are our steps, tracks us, tracks us down, hems us in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me in the sense of getting a grip on someone and refusing to uh, to let go. He will not fail. He will not forsake us. David says, such knowing, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too, too lofty for me to attain. Do you understand what he's saying? Such knowing of me, such knowledge of me is miraculous is actually the word that he uses. It's miraculous. It's too lofty for me. In other words, God knows me better than I know myself. I've spent 61 years trying to do what Socrates said, know, know yourself. And I still find there, I don't know, I don't have the slightest idea who I am. But God knows who I am. He knows me thoroughly. He knows me inside and out. He has ransacked my soul. He knows me in a way that I can can never know myself. And, and the marvel is that he still loves. He still cares. He's still proximate. He's still near. Now, David goes on in this psalm then to answer the second question. The first question is, is how, how well does God know me? The second question is, how near is God to me? You would think that if he knew what, what I'm really like, that, that he, he, he would not want to be around me at all. But that's not what David says. Where... Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There's this relentless love, God's feet pursuing us, uh, longing for us, uh, besieging 
uh, us. We can't get away from his presence, from his influence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. Isn't that a merism? If I make my bed in, in Sheol, you're there. If I go up or down, uh, God has preceded me. He's there before I arrive. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, it's a metaphor for the east. If I go to the east, if I settle on the far side of the sea, see, in Old Testament thought is always the Mediterranean. Uh, from David's standpoint, it was, it was west. Uh, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I go all the way to the east, or if I settle on the far side of the sea to the west, even there your hand will lead me. It's a word from which Noah's name comes, which means to lead to rest, even there. You lead me to rest, and your right hand will, will hold me fast. Wherever we go in the world, God precedes us. He's there. Can't get away from him. Can't escape him. His love is, is relentless. Uh, years ago, Ray Steadman gave me a poem that was written by a young friend of his, an RAF pilot by the name of John Gillespie McGee, who was killed uh, in the Battle of Britain, but uh, before he was ki- he was a believer. Before he was killed, he wrote this uh, poem. And for those of you that are pilots, you will especially appreciate this. Oh, I have slipped the, the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on on silvered wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds, and done a hundred things you've not dreamed of: wheeled and soared and swung high in the sunlit silence. Hovering there, I've chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through through footless halls of air. Up, up the long, delirious, burning blue, I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace, where never lark or even eagle flew. And while with silent, lifting mind I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space, I've put out my hand and touched the face of God. He's there. Wherever we go, that's where God is. He stays with us, uh, even in those times when we're trying to uh, trying to escape from us. Even uh, we're trying to escape from Him. Even there, He says, "Your hand holds me fast. He will not. He will not let me go." Uh, those of you that have lived in California may know of the place called the Pinnacles. That was, when our kids were growing up, that was one of our favorite places. It's a, a real narrow valley where blocks of granite have fallen into the valley and created a series of caverns. There's a stream that flows underneath. And you can wade up the stream. And in some cases, you have to brace yourself against the walls of the cavern and make your way through, the, uh, through this labyrinth. And uh, it's dark. It's really dark in there. Can't see a thing, and my kids had a love-hate relationship with that place. They they loved to explore it, but they were scared to death of the dark, and uh, uh, so was I, as a matter of fact. And uh, <clears throat> we'd go through there, and, and I'd hold one boy's hand, and I'd hold the other boy's hand. We'd make our way through, and and invariably, when we got through, the boys would say, "Well, I I, I held on, you know, I held on to your." But what they didn't know is that I was holding on to their hands. I didn't want to lose them in the dark. And, and that's the picture that David is describing here. David is in, in terrible gloom, terrible darkness. He's lost himself in his depression. God has hold 
of him. It doesn't depend on how tightly he grips, how good his grip is on God. What matters is that God has a good grip on him. He will never leave him or forsake him, even though he feels forsaken, even though he's desperate in the solitude of his own soul. God still clings to him with all of his, with all of his might. David says in verse 11, If I say, surely the darkness will envelop me, this is the word, hide me from you. And the light became become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. You remember that game we used to play, uh, uh, sardines? Any, any of you play sardines? You didn't play sardines? Where were you? My goodness. It's a wonderful game. You turn out all the lights in the house. And then you go high. And one person was it. And they had to go find you. And, and my family used to play sardines all the time. And and I, I never liked that game. I, I always wanted to be found. I wanted to be the first one that was found. Because when you were when you were found, you know, everybody sort of piled in, there, in the closet where you were like puppies in a pile. And, and you'd giggle and laugh till, till everybody, you know, till until everybody had found you. And, and I, I never like to be alone in the darkness. Well, let me tell you, God is the best sardine player there ever was. He, he will never leave you alone in the darkness. He'll find you. He knows where you are. He sees you. David says, uh, even though I feel that the darkness has, has engulfed me, it's enveloped me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Talking about his gloom, see, which he feels has enveloped him. Now, let me, uh, there's something very, very interesting about this psalm. It takes an intriguing turn at this point. One of the characteristics of the biblical writers is to subvert our minds. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but it gets us moving in one direction. And then we're jerked in another direction, and it gets our attention. Here's the way David is arguing. I know God sees me in the darkness. How did he know? Well, if you notice, the next verse is introduced by the little conjunction four. This is the reason why David knows God knows him in the darkness and God sees him in the darkness. It's because when David was in the darkest place on the face of the earth, his mother's womb, God was there. That's the way he's arguing. That when David was just a, 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 a microscopic speck, God still knew him, God still loved him, God was with him. And therefore, there's no other darkness that David could experience in which he cannot experience the, the proximity, the, the closeness, and the love of God. Notice how he argues, verse 13, for you. And, and here he... Uh, he duplicates the uh, pronoun you in order to emphasize it. You yourself created my inmost being. Uh, it's literally the Hebrew word for kidneys. It's a reference to his inward parts, his heart, his liver, his, his stomach, every, every part, uh, the, the unseen part of our bodies. Uh, God uh, created all of that. You knit me together. In my mother's womb. I think uh, David must have picked up that phrase from Job, who describes the same process, God knitting together his bones and sinews, flesh, skin. 
uh, I get the picture of, of someone with knitting needles, literally knitting a, a fabric with all of its color and, and, and it, it, its beauty, putting things where they ought to be, knitting. He says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am wonderfully, fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise what we appreciate. And so he expresses his appreciation to God because he says, I am literally, I'm awesomely made. He uses the same word that we sang earlier about God. My God is an awesome God. Same word. Fear evoking, awe-inspiring, awesome, he says. I'm awesome and I'm, I'm wonderful. Uh, that, that little Hebrew word for wonderful, plony, means distinct, unique, one of a kind. No one else like you in the world. No one has your fingerprints. No one has your facial features. No one has your personality. When God created you, he broke the mold. You're unique and distinct in, in, in your being, in your personality, in your body, your mind, emotions, and will. David says, I praise you because I'm awesome. And I'm unique. Your, your works are wonderful, he says. That's me. Okay? You're wonderful. Um, I know that full well. My frame, it's the word for bone structure, skeleton, was not hidden from you. The size of your, of your skeleton, the size uh, of your bones, of your height, all of that was uh, determined in advance. When I was made in the secret place that is in the womb, in that secret place of concealment. When I was woven together, literally embroidered. I don't know how to embroider, but I used to watch my mother embroider. And the finest craftsmanship went into those uh, that handwork. Beautifully done. Highly skilled work. And he says, uh, I was embroidered together in the depths of the earth. That's a symbolic Way of talking about that place of deepest concealment, the mother of the womb of his, of his mother. Picture a weaver placing colors in a tapestry with all the strands of intelligence and humor and physique, all, everything that makes up you, all the DNA that, that produces the person that you are was all embroidered together by, by God. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, if you, uh, I want you to, to look at the uh, side note in most translations because the side note, note usually contains uh, a, an alternate translation which comes right off the text. And if I can read it to you, the text literally says something like this. And upon your book or in your book, all of them, that is your parts, your bodily parts, your body parts, were written day by day when there was not one of them. Now, let me tell you what I think he's doing. You, you know, this is this is, uh, this is symbol, you understand. This is metaphor. It's not, not to be taken literally. But the picture that David is painting is that of God uh, having designed you from eternity and having put the design on a blueprint with your name at the top, David Roper, date of birth, 33033, and then all of the specifications, height, weight, uh, color of eyes, uh, everything that makes up David Roper on this blueprint. And then uh, God looks at the blueprint and he says, okay, the uh, hip bone is connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bone is connected to the knee bone. And day by day, while I was being created in my mother's womb, God was putting together the pieces of my body, soul, and spirit according to
to a divine plan. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a whole lot better about myself. To know that that I am what God determined from eternity that I should be. No goofs, no glitches. He didn't mess up. That I am exactly what God determined that I should I should be. You know, the world constantly conspires against us to make us feel bad about ourselves, to make us hate ourselves, despise ourselves. You look at the pictures uh, in the paper, you know, the merchants, Madison Avenue, media, all conspire against us to make us uh, despise ourselves. You know. Here on the page is a picture of a made-up pose, airbrush, model, just perfect. And there's nobody in the world looks like that. But we start comparing ourselves with what we see in in the magazines, and we start to hate ourselves. You women look at Cindy Crawford, and you look at yourself, and you think, "I look more like Broderick Crawford." And uh, <laughs> we look. We, I don't really, but I mean, you know, you, you look at, at Fabio's physique, and you, physique, and you look at yourself, and you look more like Pee Wee Herman, and it's depressing, you know. Start hating yourself. Don't like yourself. Of course, what they're trying to do, you know, there is a conspiracy abroad to get you to buy more of their products so you will look like the people on the page. Of course, you never will, but that, that's, that's, that's the, uh, that's, that's the deceit. But the net result of that is that we look at the pictures on the page and we compare ourselves and we don't like ourselves anymore and we forget that what we are is a body designed by God, a personality that he has perfected from eternity, that we're exactly what God wanted us to be, nothing more and nothing less. Now, I've got an assignment for you. I want you to go home this afternoon you can stand in front of the, and stand in front of the mirror. You don't have to take your clothes off. Just stand there. You know, Don't flex your pecs and your lats and don't suck in your tummy. Just look at yourself and say, that is totally awesome. I'm serious. That is wonderful. That's a miracle. That's what God created. Well, there are things about me that I don't like. I think God made some mistakes, made my ears too big or whatever. No. No, you're exactly what God intended you to be. Nothing more. And nothing less. We are totally awesome. Now David says in verse 17, How precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God. Uh, Most of the texts say two, but again there's a side note that uh, tells us that the little preposition means concerning. It's not talking about uh, David's thoughts about God. He's talking about God's thoughts about him. And the word that's translated thoughts here is the same word that's found in verse 2 for intentions and aspirations and longings and desires. You understand what God is saying? God's thoughts about you are precious. That God has longings and desires and intentions, yearnings for you that are beyond our kin. And that all the design that he put into our bodies is to accomplish that, that purpose. Ah, oh, that's a wonderful thought. To know that his 
His aspirations for us exceed our expectations. I think that's why Paul wrote that line. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. You and I have our own intentions and desires and longings. I want you to understand that God's desires for you are even greater. They're more precious. They're more significant than the ones that that you have for yourself. David says, how precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You know, all the wealth of detail in our bodies suggests the magnitude of of God's uh, plan and the diversity of it, the wonder of it. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awoke, literally, I'm still with you. Now, there are two ways that... uh, Interpreters uh, look at that line, when I awoke. One understanding of it is that David is referring to his birthday. That when he woke up, God was still with him. In other words, God created him in the womb. God loved him. God cared for him. God saw him through the whole process of gestation. And then he brings him into the world, and God's still with him. Nothing new. God has accompanied him through the whole process. Loved him. Cared for him. Nurtured him. It's one way of looking at it. Another is to see that David is talking about the resurrection. Uh, this would be what scholars call a prophetic perfect. Uh, that is, he puts, uh, this event is so certain in his mind that he puts it in the past. It's as though it's already accomplished. In Hebrew, you don't really only have two tenses. There's a completed, one signifies completed action, one incomplete action. And here is uses the notion of a complete action. So what David could be saying is that when I a, a when I awake, that is, when that great getting up morning comes, and I wake up out of this world of dreams and illusions and lies, he's still with me. He loved me when I was nothing more than a gleam in my father's eye. He's followed me through the whole course of conception, gestation, birth. He has followed me through my whole life in the ins and outs and ups and downs, and rigors, harm, hurt, everything. He's followed me all the way through. And when I die, I just step into a deeper, more profound relationship with him. When I awake, I'm still with him. Actually, I like both of those ideas myself. Now, uh, verse 19 is jarring. You know, we were talking about uh, David and his feelings about himself, and all of a sudden he turns his wrath on his enemies. Now, here's what I think is happening. David had had turned his wrath toward himself. He had centered all of his anger on himself and resentment and bitterness because of the way he was. He had even been blaming God for making him this way. And we do that at times. We don't like what we see. We don't like what we feel. We don't, we, we don't like our propensity toward certain kinds of weaknesses or illnesses. And we feel that God has made a mistake. And we get mad at him and we get mad at ourselves. And what David does at this juncture is to turn his anger away from himself and God and onto his enemies. This is one of those imprecatory sections of, of the Psalms where David prays imprecations, curses, on his enemies. And we say, oh, that's not Christian. You know, you bet your life it is. Because you have the same thing in the New Testament. Because David is turning his anger on the enemies of God, whom he says are, are his enemies. These may well be the people that made David... Uh, that put David into this fit of depression and discouragement, those that had been on his case and on his back, and who did not see God's uh, plan to use David as part of the process to bring salvation to the world. And so he turns his anger on his enemies in, 
And he will not take vengeance on them. We've seen that attitude over and over again in David. He will not avenge himself, but just turns them over to God. Says, I hate them with a perfect hatred. Uh, we can still love people. See, but hate their deeds. There's some people that are probably in your life. Maybe it was a, a distant or disapproving or an abusive father that you had that has has brought about the devastation of your own personality and made you feel so bad about yourself. Well, that person, in a very real sense, is the enemy of God because he or she is inveighing against God's plan for you to become everything that, that God wants you to be. It's not right what was done to you. And we do, after all, live in a very just world. And God will himself deal with evil in the world. We do not get away scot-free in this world. So it's all right for us to pray that God will deal with our enemies. It's not good for us to take vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, the Lord says. But we can pray these sorts of uh, prayers. Oh, if only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you, that is God, but with with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your, your name. They even use God words. They may be religious people, but they really have no no use for God. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and I abhor those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. And most of the translations say I have a perfect hatred. A mature hatred is a hatred that can still love the sinner and hate the evil and pray that God will deal with the evil in that in that person. But then if you if you follow the argument, David turns from saying, Judge, judge your enemies. To saying, judge me. I need to be examined as well. He uses the same word that he uses in verse 1. Keep on searching me, O God. Keep on knowing my heart. This is what Richard Foster, the uh, Puritan uh, writer, or excuse me, not Puritan, uh, Quaker writer, uh, calls the examine of love. Uh, this searching, examining, is not... Uh, is not designed to, to strip us of our dignity and rip us apart. It's the examination of love that God makes. He ransacks our hearts and searches us. David says, test me, try me, and know my anxious thoughts. Uh, the, the word for anxious here is a word that comes from the Hebrew word to divide, and it means uh, a distracting thoughts. See, that's the problem when we get preoccupied with ourselves. We're distracted away from a single-minded love for God. We're thinking about ourselves instead of thinking about him. And that's the most harmful thing that we can do. That's why David goes on to say, See if there is any, not offensive, hurtful is the word, harmful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The most harmful thing I can think of is to... Is to get down on yourself, to brood about the way you look or about your personality, the flaws in your character and the mistakes that God has made, the lack of parity that you've experienced with the beautiful people around you. Think of yourself as ugly. Think of yourself as as too thin or, or not rich enough or not accomplished enough, not gifted enough. Those are the things that, that, that distract us, cause us to, to squander our energies on ourselves instead of focusing them 
on the God who loves us and who cares about us. Now, what I would like to leave with you is just that prayer. Take that home with you. And ask God daily to search me. Look for those hurtful ways of thinking about myself that distract me away from a sincere and wholehearted love for Christ. The uh, uh, songwriter Randall Dennis puts it this way. Search me, O God, that I may walk in peace. Filled with the joy of knowing all is well, my heart surrendered and my conscience clean. So great a joy my tongue can scarcely tell. Oh, what a joy to know that all is well. Oh, how, how peaceful it is to know that we're okay. God loves us just as we are. He made us as he has destined us to be. Let's pray. Search our hearts, Lord, and see if there, if there is in us a harmful way. A preoccupation with ourselves, and how we look, and what we are in ourselves, in our bodies, our minds, our emotions. Help us to, to accept ourselves, seeing ourselves as one who is one awesomely, wonderfully made, distinct, unique, part of a flock, but one of a kind, greatly loved, cared for. Appreciated. One who, who draws out your desire to be close to us, to walk with us, to care for us, nurture us, love us, purify us, sanctify us, mold us, make us all that your heart desires. We just, we thank you for that this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.